the word. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who has come into our world with great compassion, great mercy. You touched many untouchables. You stepped out and moved toward people who were known to be people who were living way past the edges of what was appropriate. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that your love is a love that was shared. And we pray that you would help us now as we look into your word today. Lord, all of us need to be reminded of these wonderful truths as we all very subtly and easily can be pressured and can be easily drifting in our lives. We pray that you would help us to focus on Christ and focus on what is true about Christ in the gospel. And may we find our true security in that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're reading in Hebrews chapter 4, if you have a Bible or you've got your screen on there. Hebrews chapter 4. We're looking at just verses 14 to 16 this morning. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who cannot, sorry, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Now, I'm sure we've all heard of strange birthday gifts that people have received over the years. But a couple of weeks ago, Dave Tedesco, one of our own, received a rather, I call it, odd birthday gift. For his latest birthday, Dave received an anchor. I'm like a boat, boat anchor. I saw a picture of it on his phone. He was proud of it, very thankful for it. I just sort of shook my head, said, okay. I don't think too many of us have on our wish list a boat anchor, but that's what he got. But if you know Dave, you know that he is a person who is a well-trained, uh, actually officially trained, boat uh, captain. And boaters know that anchors, when it comes to the equipment on a boat, anchors are essential equipment. When operating a boat away from the shore, there are all sorts of strong currents, there's all sorts of winds that can push a boat in all sorts of directions into places that you know full well you'd be wise to avoid. There might be like jagged rocks. There might be who knows what you might find that boat stuck in or uh, running up against. And the only way to hold a boat in place away from the shore is with an anchor. Or you might be tied to another boat that is clearly and effectively anchored. And what we're finding now in this book of Hebrews is that this book was written to Jewish people who were drifting downstream. There were currents that were pushing them downstream due to various, I would call it the currents of trials 
the currents of persecution. A number of them were beginning to suffer painful consequences. And why was that? Because they had declared an allegiance to Jesus as their Messiah. And some of them had more recently had, as a consequence of their devotion to Christ, they had had their property confiscated by those who strongly resented everything about Jesus. You read that in verse 10, chapter 10, verse 34. A number of them were beginning to question whether it was worth it to follow Jesus, to be so mistreated because they were loyal followers of Jesus the Messiah. And so these currents of persecution began to push them towards spiritual disaster. If they didn't stop their drifting, they were about to go over a massive waterfall, I would call it, a waterfall that I would term apostasy. That is, they were about to, if they weren't careful and things didn't change, they were about to renounce the faith. They were about to reject Jesus. They were about to return to the rituals of Judaism without anything to do with Jesus, the fulfillment of all that was predicted in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Many of these people were plagued by doubts and disillusionment. They were becoming more and more difficult for them to hold their ground against the strong currents that were beginning to pressure them to go back to just performing the rituals of the past. And you'll notice here the verses that we're looking at, verses 14 to 16, is preceded by the reminder that the Word of God, which is so powerful in its effect upon a person's life, that Word was revealing more clearly that their motives in the past, or even their motives now, were rather suspect. Their motives were oftentimes impure for what they were doing. They were really mostly concerned about themselves rather than they were in honoring God, and loving God, and loving other people. Their thoughts were not what they should be. And here they are feeling rather alone at times. They noticed that their friends, their fellow converts, quote-unquote, were abandoning each other as the pressure increased. And so the writer of Hebrews reminded them that they and we have an anchor. The gospel of Jesus Christ is designed to hold true Christians against these strong currents that are pushing against us. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the only safeguard against the dangers of drifting, spiritually speaking. If you notice in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, 1 to 4, it talks about beware of the danger of drifting. Well, these discouraged and distressed disciples, they were very close to saying, I quit. This being a Christian stuff, I don't know. I'm, I'm about ready to give up. They were very, very close to turning their back on Jesus Christ. How did they get to that point? How could they come from finding this great, amazing privilege of being in Christ and enjoying all that Christ did for us? How can they get to the point where they're ready to say, I don't think it's worth it? Well, the book of Hebrews offers, I believe, two encouraging reminders about the anchor that every believer has for our souls. If you look in your notes, we're looking, first of all, at what he says in verse 14. We're to treasure Jesus, the greatest gift of all. Don't lose sight of what God in the gospel provides and what God in the gospel promises. 
You see, rather than looking to our past, rather than looking to our performance to provide some sort of spiritual security, the gospel reminds us, as the writer of Hebrews does, that it's so essential that we not lose sight of what God has done in the gospel. Left to ourselves, all of us are faced with the reality that we have failed to love God. With all our heart, soul, and strength and mind, we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And therefore, since we have all failed to follow God's standards, we are cut off from fellowship with the God who made us for himself. Our disobedience and our lawless behavior leaves us alienated from God. We are awaiting someday his just wrath, which is what we deserve to receive because of our rebelliousness. But God, in the gospel, provides the ultimate solution. He provides to us a mediator. He provides to us a high priest, the one who is not just merely a high priest, but he is the great, great high priest. Because that's literally what the text says there. He's using two words here. When he says the high priest and the great high priest, those are really almost essentially the same terms. The mega, mega great priest is what he's saying here. What's so great about it? Well, it's Jesus, the Son of God. He's the one who came from heaven to represent and to reconcile sinners like us to God. And Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice to God on our behalf. The high priest of the Mosaic Covenant, which I'm sure all of these people to whom the book was written, they would be very familiar with the account there in Exodus, in which we read in the Pentateuch, these high priests, was the, the, the high priest, they only had one each time, um, each at any one point, they just had one, one high priest. He was to pass through the curtain of the tabernacle, or if it was in the time of the temple, he was to pass through the curtain in the temple that goes into the Holy of Holies. He did so only once, once a year. The day was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On that day, this high priest was required to offer the prescribed sacrifice for himself, and then he was to don all of this complicated garb and, and clothing and a turban on his head and all of these kind of things which were showing that he was representative of the people of Israel, and he was to then, having made his own sacrifice for sin, bring the blood of a sacrifice animal into the Holy of Holies and offer it in accordance with God's required requirements for the people on their behalf, representing them before a holy God. This yearly offering was something done just that, every year, repeated, every year, again and again and again, year after year. But what the writer of Hebrews is trying to emphasize here is that Jesus is such an a, a, a incredibly far superior high priest in that he was uniquely great. Great in the sense that as the ultimate high priest, he entered the ultimate holy of holies, not just merely a holy of holies in a temple here on earth, but he entered into heaven itself. Jesus offered himself to God his Father, and he himself was the offering which he presented to the Father. And that offering was accepted. His mediation was supremely effective. You'll notice in the text we read earlier in chapter 10, where it says that Jesus was offered once for all. 
once for all. It's repeated in this book uh, numerous times. Not continually year after year, but once for all. What does that mean? It means that when he offered that one offering, that was all that was needed to be offered. And therefore, when Jesus was ascended into heaven after his resurrection, it made it clear that his priestly work was finished. He is seated in the Holy of Holies, completed all of his necessary work on behalf of his people before God in offering an atoning sacrifice. We read in chapter 1 of Hebrews, we read this, that after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God in the majesty on high. Now in the Old Covenant, that was unheard of, to have anybody sitting down in the Holy of Holies. You don't do that. There's no chair in there. It's not designed for a place that you hang out and that you become um, sort of thinking that you have nothing else to do, you've got time on your hands. No, it was there for, uh, it was completely empty of that. It was there only, the priest when he was there was to offer that sacrifice and do what was required of him and then he was to re be removed from that place. But Jesus' work of atonement is finished. Completely done. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing can be made more effective in his sufficiency of what he did. His redemption was done. Now let's think through what that means. What that means is that for you and for me, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Christ, repented of your sins, my friend, we all need to make sure that our anchor is in place. Every disciple of Jesus Christ daily faces a number of currents and strong winds that can push us toward things like discouragement and doubt and distress. In a world that assigns worth and value that's based on our achievements, that's based on our competency, that might be based on our appearance, how we look, and, and the need to get rid of our crow feet in our eyes or whatever. I'm like, I go to this eye doctor the other day and I'm realizing he does Botox. I'm like, the doctor does Botox? I thought he fixed eyes. I mean, what is this? We have such an obsession with our appearance. We are a people who think and find our worth or think our worth is to be found in our IQ, in our athletic ability, in the number of likes that we receive online. That will definitely indicate my worth and value in the eyes of other people. The danger of this is what? It is only Jesus who can give us what we most desperately need, and that is to find acceptance before God Almighty. It is Jesus alone who's provided every sinner that repents and believes upon him full acceptance before God Almighty. Jesus has, once for all, removed guilt, removed that which was an obstacle, and he is now, because of what he offered in his sacrifice, into the Holy of Holies, heaven itself, therefore those who are believing in him, we are provided full access to God. Years ago, my wife and I were living on a seminary budget, which means poverty, life in a mobile home, and we drove a car that was a 1969 Valiant our other car literally rusted to death, and we had to finally get rid of it. And here we were 
looking for things to do with no money. We entered a contest, my wife did, and we won the contest, a radio contest. And the contest was a couple of nights at a hotel in Chicago, a limousine ride from the hotel to uh, the stadium where the White Sox were playing that summer in Chicago. And so they said, we have box seats right on the field level waiting for you at gate whatever it was. Let's say it's gate F. So we show up there, get out of the limousine. People think we're famous, and I walk around there, and I've got a camera around my neck like a tourist, and i got a pair of uh, you know, jeans on, whatever. So we show up, look for this gate F, walk up and say, we are the people who won the contest. We're here for our tickets. And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. Move out of the line. We've got other people waiting. I kept saying, no, I won the contest. They don't, what are you talking about? We don't have anything for you. Move along. Try another gate, whatever. I mean, they were just trying to get rid of us. We had no one to appeal to. We had no one who could verify that we won. There was no number. I had no cell phone. We were just stuck there. No one to help us with what we told was ours. Jesus is the high priest who insists you have access to the throne. You have access to come before God. You cannot be kept away. See, unfortunately, so many of us, we don't realize it, but Satan is deceiving so many people in today's world into believing that Mary is the one who is the co-redemptrix. It's Mary who's the co-mediatrix. Many people look to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and they are the ones, they, th they assume that she is the way to get to Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the way to God. They have been taught that all prayers flow through Mary and then to Christ. But would you notice what the scriptures say? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, so clearly says, there is only one, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Many claim that Mary was sinless, she is a perpetual virgin, virgin. But will you notice that only Jesus in our text this morning, only he is the one who is sinless. Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1 contained her own admission for her own need of a Savior. And when Jesus was asked during his earthly ministry about his mother, Mary, he seemed to downplay her position of honor. Listen to what he said. This woman walks up to him in Luke 11, and she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. In other words, your mother. She's the one who must be tremendously honored and praised. Look what Jesus said. Jesus said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. You see, there's no one greater than Jesus. He is the great, mega-great high priest. He is the one and only, all-sufficient, all-supreme sin offering that's been presented unto God in heaven. And this, what the point of this text is, the writer is saying, hang on to Jesus. Hang on to the supreme gift that we have in Him of full forgiveness. Hold on to the gospel promise that in Christ you are welcomed by God. See, I think some of us are unaware of the that flow in our thought life, in our meditating life, currents that cause us to drift spiritually, 
Whereas Satan may whisper in our ears that it's up to us to do better so that God will someday look favorably upon us in that final day. We have to try harder. We have to do better. My friend, the writer of Hebrews says, hold on to Jesus. Don't hold on to those kind of whispers. Hold on to Jesus. When he gave himself to bear the penalty that we deserve to pay, we were shown the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen. Once you are joined to Christ by saving faith, the Bible says that nothing can separate you or me from the love of Christ. We are eternal benefactors of Jesus' high priestly offering. We are elevated and welcomed and fully pleasing in God's eyes through Jesus Christ, our high priestly ministry done on behalf of his people. So my question I ask to you is, are you celebrating, are you claiming, are you holding closely to the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ? That's what we need to do, because if we don't, you're going to start drifting. And the drifting leads to disaster. Second thing on this text, which is so helpful for us in our meditating this morning, before we come to the Lord's table, I want us to notice in verses 15 and 16, he says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's a double negative. Another way of saying it is, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. One who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying that we are to entreat the greatest helper. We're to seek him out. We're to ask him for help. Take advantage of gospel privileges through prayer. Because what kind of helper do we have in Jesus? Well, he's a sympathizing helper. I believe it's so easy to adopt a mindset that a person of this high esteemed position of honor and glory and authority it's easy to assume that they would never relate to a person like us. They would never really understand us in our little world, in our little struggles, and the kind of things that we go through in life. And some of us are pushed around on a daily basis by all sorts of, of currents of discouragement that are just pushing us away from enjoying and benefiting from a close relationship with Jesus Christ because we assume that, wrongly, that we're bothering God by bringing to him all of our little petty problems, our petty issues. And so we somehow try to handle life on our own. We fend for ourselves as best we can. And we pride ourselves on living independently, thinking that we can do this, just keep trying hard. We assume that Jesus and all of his supreme greatness is oblivious to all of the different forms of testing and trials that you face and that I face from day to day. But the gospel assures us of this, that Jesus is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. It's so important to remember that during Jesus' human experience, he endured the full range of trials, the full range of, of testings, 
that you and I are dealing with in this life. Indeed, Jesus knows the challenges of what? Human relationships. Some of us are dealing with the challenge that comes in that area. Some of us know the pain of sorrow. Someone you dearly love is no longer here in this life with you. Some of us going through the anguish of unrelenting physical pain. Others of us know the humbling struggles of poverty. Wondering if we're going to have enough to make it in life. Jesus lived as a human in, the, in this fallen world. He was not immune to trials. He was not immune to testings that we face from time to time. And what is unique about Jesus is that as he went through the trials, as he went through the various testings, he always yielded to the will of his Father in heaven. He demonstrated a supreme strength over Satan who enticed him time after time and tried to encourage him to compromise the Father's will. I don't have time to get into it, but I'm thankful that there are these very, very smart people who test the strength of metals and of things like steel girders. Because think about it, we're all sitting on a bunch of steel girders that were put in place in 1963, right below you, where you're sitting right now. And those steel I-beams were tested in its design and in its content of the amount of steel there to, see, to put stress on them to make sure and to ensure that that steel would be enough sufficient to handle all of the weight that's lying on top of it, just like all the steel they use in various bridges and all those things. And they use different kinds of stress. They use compression stress. Again, I'm not an engineer. This is what I've read. They use also tension stress, where they pull it in this direction. And they're also using shear stress, which is coming at it from two different sides at the same time. And the point is, you test that metal, you test that design to see at what point does it begin to crumble? At what point does it begin to cr crack? At what point does it begin to compromise its integrity? And Jesus Christ, I assure you, was tested in every possible way, and he never once yielded to sin. He was pushed to the full limit, and he succeeded in every aspect of that testing. His inner spiritual strength was tested to the limit. And therefore, he is able to help those of us who are weak, those of us who crumble and cave quickly. He's able to lift us up when we have compromise or when we're on the verge of doing so. It is Jesus who said, I have walked this path. I know the struggle you're facing. You can trust me. It's okay to admit our weaknesses. Why? Because Jesus knows those struggles, he knows those stresses, and he knows when we're weighed down, he is the one who can empower us to move forward and to not completely compromise. Notice he not only has someone who can sympathize and offer help, he also has someone who is compassionate in the help that Jesus offers. Sometimes we wrongly assume that since Jesus is so great again, he's not likely to help us because he would rather invest his time, his attention, into someone else who is, shall we say, someone far more significant 
someone who matters in the bigger picture of what's going on in the kingdom of heaven. And we need to beware here because Satan will oftentimes whisper into our minds this subtle lie that says that we need not bother asking our great high priest, Jesus, for any help because he isn't really that concerned about us. Some of us are duped into imagining that Jesus is primarily concerned with other people who are the shakers and the movers of the kingdom of heaven. But don't miss this. The gospel insists that we have every reason to be confident that we will receive mercy from Christ when we come to him. Look at verse 16. That we may receive mercy. What we talk about was that mercy. Mercy has the element of compassion assumed as part of it. It is a heart that's moved with compassion as a person who's merciful. Merciful. When we come to ask help from Christ, we're not to think of him as being indifferent to us. He's one who is what? He is compassionate. He is his heart is is turned toward us and a concern for us and our our struggle, the fact that we're weak and weary and ready to quit. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2, if you would, a few pages earlier in that book of Hebrews. And notice that Jesus offers mercy to his people in times of need. It says in verse 17 and verse 18, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tested. See, mercy is the response Jesus made again and again in his earthly ministry to people who were helpless, to people who were in need around him. Now, don't assume that Jesus couldn't care less about you. That, my friend, is a mindset that means you will really tremendously drift in your spiritual walk. Rather, ask Jesus for help. Don't assume that because you are in a mess of some kind in your life, because of some decisions you made of your own creation, you've gotten yourself into a bad mess and you are not where you need to be, don't assume that Jesus' response is going to be some sort of indifferent, cold-shoulder response like, eh, just deal with it yourself. No, I would encourage you to realize that Jesus is full of mercy. His heart is full of compassion. Never lose sight of the greatness of his tender-heartedness, his tender mercies. He's ready to welcome you and to help you as you ask for help. Thirdly, notice that in this text, he speaks not only of a sympathetic helper, a person who's also merciful in helping us, but notice he's also generous in the help he offers. All of us need in the gospel an anchor, an anchor to those gospel promises that will help us what? Not drift away, not be pushed down by pressures happening in our life, leading us to somehow live apart from our Savior. Some of us have drifted from the wondrous truth that Jesus is gracious 
and he is generous. Some of us have adopted perhaps the distorted view of God that, that he is stingy. He's like maybe you had a member of your family or your father or somebody that you dealt with years ago. Stingy. I mean, they just they would not let even a penny be taken out of their hand or pocket more than what they absolutely had to do. But think, my friends, with us about the grace of Jesus Christ. Some of us all too rarely ask God for generous provisions. Some of us are used to asking God for small gestures. He stands ready, however, to share from the resources of his immeasurable wealth to give to you and to help you. I've been trying to think of what the analogy would be to that. I've come up with something that's a little weak, but maybe it'll help you. It's what I was thinking about. Some of us relate every so often because of sheer necessity to the DMV. Again, I have no problem with any individual employee of the Department of Motor Vehicles, but it's a necessary reality of regulation in our, in our culture. But some of us relate to God the way we relate to the D Department of Motor Vehicles. That is this. You relate to God by coming to God and you bring your performance record. You say, I have completed this uh, test and I've given all the answers and I passed them and I've given you a copy of an eye exam with my report on it. So therefore, you DMV, you owe me a learner's permit. And so here they go, they hand you the learner's permit. And you're required to have someone in the car and you go around and you learn to drive and after a while you pass your driving's test and you pass the other test, and therefore you come and you present your paperwork, it's all done just right, and you say, okay, now give me my driver's license. That's what I've earned. But did you ever say to the person at DMV, hey, can you help me with a car? You got some means of transportation for me? Can you help me with the gas to keep the car going? How about some help with insurance? Could you please help me with that either? No, we just get what we've earned and deserved, and that's all you get from DMV. And if you don't do it right, then they'll take your license away. That's not the way God deals with us in grace. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And I've given you in your notes there a quote from Spurgeon that, if you don't mind, I'm going to read it to you, even though it's right in front of you, but maybe you should read it as well, along with me. At the same time, here's what Spurgeon, that great... Baptist pastor said in the 1800s, we do not come in prayer to a place where God dispenses his favors to the poor, nor do we come to the back door of the house of mercy to receive scraps, though that is more than we deserve. When we pray, we are standing in the palace before God's throne. We are on the glittering floor of the great king's reception room, and thus we are placed on advantaged ground. Shall we come with stunted requests and a narrow, contracted faith? No! For if it does not become, it does not become a king to be giving away pennies. Don't you love that? It's not, God is so wealthy in, in, in grace and strength and power and wisdom. It's not like he has to just give tiny little pennies away as if that's going to somehow, no, he has much more to give than that. Our God distributes pieces of broad gold. Now, I'm not saying that God's going to make you rich. That's not what Spurgeon's trying to say here. What he's saying is, Oh, that we always felt this way when we came before the throne of grace. Then he would do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Are you coming boldly, without shame, without embarrassment, confident, confident, 
and what Christ, your high priest, has done for you. And therefore, you have every reason to stand before God, asking for whatever it is you need, and knowing that he is what? Able to do abundantly above all that you can ask or imagine. Therefore, we should ask big requests and seek him often. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did, in the person of your Son, enter into our human race. You came and you humbled yourself in the person of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, lived among us. You dealt with the challenges of life in this world, all the brokenness, all the things that are out of order, all of the struggles against the enemy of our souls the evil one and all of his promptings. We thank you that our Lord Jesus did so, never having given in to anything but other than the will of the Father. And we thank you that in Christ we have hope, we have an anchor, we have that which we can rely on to keep us from drifting toward disaster. We pray today, Lord, that as you have reminded us of our Savior of gospel promises associated with him, of the gospel provision we have in him. We pray today, Lord, that you would help us to celebrate this anchor we have in him. We pray that as we come to the Lord's table and are reminded once again of the glories of the gospel, what Christ has done for us and who we are in Christ, Lord, may these things keep us from drifting away from you. May we treasure Christ today. May we celebrate all that Christ is to us in the gospel. May our hearts be enamored with him and encouraged because of him. And may we know, Lord, that we are not on our own. We pray that through these moments of fellowship with you around the Lord's table, that you would not only encourage our hearts, but Lord, may we, in a fresh and vital and a dynamic way, May we give you glory and all praise and all honor as we filled with wonder and amazement at the grace and mercy we received in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.